from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The new chief of staff of the Air Force is calling for a focus on the joint warfighting concept and, quote, digital, low-cost, high-tech warfighting capacities in his new strategic vision. General Charles Brown writes, if the Air Force doesn't adapt, quote, we risk losing a high-end fight. General Brown writes the Air Force has to work differently with other DOD stakeholders, Congress, and industry. The Navy is reviewing results from Rama the Pacific 2020 after a sinking exercise with harpoon missiles and torpedoes closed out two weeks of collaboration with partner nations. The former USS Durham took fire from ships, subs, and aircraft from the U.S., Brunei, Australia, and Canada for most of a day before it sunk Sunday night. USNI News reports this year's RIMPAC was shorter and included fewer navies because of the pandemic. A continuing resolution could disrupt the defense industrial base, according to the Navy's top acquisition official. Assistant Secretary for Research, Development, and Acquisition Hondo Gertz tells USNI News efforts to award contracts earlier this fiscal year are helping his acquisition team, quote, create some bandwidth to prepare for the new fiscal year. Gertz says the biggest risk to the industrial base is insecurity. About a million Defense Department employee, employees and contractors now work remotely, and the Pentagon is working to allow for classified remote work opportunities. James Hassick is the senior fellow at George Mason University's Center for Government Contracting and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's writing in Defense News about whether DOD still needs the Pentagon building. Thanks for being here, Jim. It's a provocative idea to stop using the Pentagon. Why should we consider it? You know, when the Pentagon was built back in 1942, 1943, the notion was that there was a great need to have all the uh, top leadership of the War Department and the Navy Department, as it was at the time, together in one place so they could plan the war effort very effectively alongside one another, not scattered around Washington, D.C. and its environs. So that made sense given the technology at the time and also one crucial uh, reality that we, we overlooked today, which was that the Germans had about zero ability to actually attack Northern Virginia, okay? So what has changed in the interim is that the Pentagon has become, because every, every headquarters facility in the world has become vulnerable to standoff precision weapons. Our adversaries now have lots of these, okay? We're worried about this in the Western Pacific. We probably should be worried about it around the world. Uh, any fixed target, any concentrated fixed target is highly vulnerable, but something else has changed. We probably don't all need to work alongside each other anymore because we're not working alongside each other anymore. The people in the Pentagon had scattered all over to homes around, you know, Fairfax County and and, and further. Uh, and 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 the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, says, you know, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. It was actually the words he used to say, this is going much better than I thought it would. And his his deputy CIO is on the record of having said, you know, we're, we're just we're not having big problems with this. It, it's working out okay. So why would you want a big target it, that concentrates almost all the top leadership of the military departments and the Office of Secretary of Defense, less the defense agency. You want a big target that concentrates 30,000 of the top people in the department in one place. Oh gosh, would I go after that in wartime if I were an enemy? Absolutely. Be tops on my list. It sounds like you think we're at something of a turning point with the pandemic that it's really shown how much can be done remotely. 
Um, what about that classified piece? Do you think that that presents something of a barrier to, to your idea? Well, it absolutely present, presents, a, uh, if not a barrier, at least a ramp. That, that this is going to, that would be something that the Defense Department would need to work out over time. But it's also sort of a matter of comfort with what it is that we consider to be classified and how it's treated. There, we've heard plenty of people speculating about how we probably in the Defense Department are people there enormously overclassify things that don't need to be as classified as they are right now. Uh, and they treat them with a lot of more, um, arguably with a lot more care than they probably need to. Many of the things that we're worried about the Chinese and the Russians finding out are pretty mundane. So let me give you an example. Go back to World War II, okay? If you go over to the Army Navy Club in Arlington, you're going to see on the wall a copy of, it's actually the original, I think, of Eisenhower's speech, you know, that, that picture where he's talking to the paratroopers before D-Day? This is the speech that he had prepared so he could go talk to the people. And he says, you guys are landing in France tomorrow. And stamped top and bottom, it says confidential. It's not top secret. So we, had, we definitely had a different way of looking at things back in the day. And I'm not sure that, that this is actually going to prove to be as big a problem as people think it is. Also, I'm not actually suggesting that everybody has to work from home. It, it, it possibly could be that we could set up lots of satellite offices, or at least the military departments around around if you know if you go to Virginia, Maryland district, uh, and then further out around the country. It, not everybody has to actually work from his home office once the pandemic kind of gets more well either manageable or we get accustomed to it. Uh, but it's it's an important this is an important ancillary argument that I had about you know, why it would be a great idea to close the Pentagon. Nobody really wants to come here, okay? So, I mean, if you're stationed in California or in Hawaii or in Texas and your kids are in school and, you know, you're hoping to rotate back to, I don't know, Brigade Command or something uh, later in your career, why do you want to move? I mean, I love Northern Virginia, but why do you want to have to move? Is it not possible that we could actually disperse more offices around the country? And I've got probably except for the local congressional delegation here, I can find a lot of congressmen who would probably be excited about that idea as well. Sure. Are there um, maybe some disadvantages, though? Obviously, you, you think it's worth it to eliminate this target, but what do you think would be the downsides of this? Oh, no, so the downsides are clear. I mean, the, the, the big one is that uh, if I sent the, um, if I actually sent headquarters Space Force, you know, not, they didn't put it in the Pentagon, like the Space Force keeps saying, oh, no, it's going to be in the Pentagon. You know, if it actually went to Colorado Springs or wherever, then when the head of the Space Force wanted to talk to, you know, the chief, when the chief of space operations wanted to talk to the naval operations, and he didn't want to do it on the phone or on a video conference, he'd actually have to get on your Okay, if you do want that, that you know, close uh, close contact, that that kind of sitting around the, the big oak table kind of feeling, which is important sometimes. Right. Okay, so that you're not going to have all the time. Myself, I've been a little bit mystified by, um, or maybe I've just sort of been intrigued by the reaction to remote work, this pleasant surprise that lots of folks have had, because, I, I mean, it was personal experience. I've just been, I've worked from home as an academic promoter and consultant for most of the last two decades. And, you know, it works a little bit better when I'm alongside people, but it's really not critical. And it doesn't get me on airplanes that much. Uh, Jim, we, we only have a few more seconds, so I just want to ask, what do you think are the odds that, that this could happen? How crazy is this idea? So it's pretty low, to be honest, and that's what actually... Um, the, the biggest argument I've heard from 
some of the people who have talked to me about this since I published this thing. And one of the motivations I had for publishing it was that I really hadn't hadn't seen anybody making this argument before, is that, well, yeah, but that'll never happen. Well, I've heard plenty of other, well, that'll never happen. Like, you know, would the Marine Corps give up all its tanks? Well, there was a good reason they might have done that, and that just happened. So, you know, uh, dresses tend to uh, have a cleansing effect. Sometimes there are things that we've been doing wrong for decades that, you know, it takes a good crisis to uh, to move to create some action. And um, I hope at least I can start a conversation about this because I, I, I I'm alarmed by just how concentrated a target our military headquarters really is. Thanks for the time, Jim. Up next, working from home at the Air Force, straight ahead on Government Matters, envisioning long-term telework options after the pandemic. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Offices in the Air Force could stay virtual for the long term. Commander of Air Force Materiel Command, General Arnold Bunch, says he's reviewing job descriptions and deciding whether they're compatible with telework. Deborah Lee James was the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. She's the author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Thanks for being here. How has the Air Force shifted to telework during the pandemic? Well, thanks for having me. First off, Marjorie, it's great to see you. Um, well, to answer your question, I think the Air Force and the entirety of DOD has done a monumental task in shifting what we now have approximately 4 million people across the department who have shifted to telework. And that includes most of the Pentagon and a good many of the 685,000 people in the Air Force. So really, all I can say is it has surprised many skeptics. The productivity has been great. And really, beginning in late February, the Air Force and others ramped it up in a big, big way. They started issuing virtual private networks to people so that they could stay connected to the office from home. They also started issuing secure laptops to many more people. Again, not the entire force has those laptops, but many more were purchased and, um, and given out. They ordered up licenses that could improve capabilities over time. And of course, they had terrible bandwidth problems in the very beginning. Bugs had to be worked out of the system, but they've increased bandwidth. So to, now it is to the point where, at least from all that I am hearing, it is going reasonably well. So a monumental task, and I would say very well done. As you mentioned, Debbie, there there were quite a few skeptics here, and they really did this heavy lift at the beginning. Does that, um, do you think, present sort of a jumping off point to look at telework for maybe um, some roles where it would be less expected or, or more difficult? Well, I, I, I certainly hope that this will be something that is carried on into the future, even after we are no longer in the crisis of the immediate crisis of COVID-19. As you mentioned, the Air Force Materiel Command is really taking the lead. General Bunch is doing two key things. First of all, he is planning for the future. He's systematically looking at all of the positions within his command, and he's asking the questions which of these positions can we go forward and do telework either in full or some sort of a hybrid approach, meaning some telework and some back to the uh, office area for work or to the workspace. So he's planning, he's reviewing, and he also needs to budget some of the upfront costs that would re be required. I would hope others would follow suit, other commands, other leaders within the Air Force, because what we find is the productivity has been very, very good and people like it either in whole or in part. So having 
that flexibility is key. And increasingly, they're looking at how they can do more of it for maintenance, for telehealth, for, for some of the types of jobs that you don't think of as typically lending themselves to telework. You mentioned also this this IT infrastructure piece, the technology that they had to purchase. Um, do you expect them to continue to buy more? Do you expect this maybe to show up in some future budgets? Well, I think probably they're going to have to buy some more. I do know that they have a cliff that they're about to run off of unless they take action with respect to some key licenses that they were able to acquire um, in very rapid fashion, those licenses which allow for certain capabilities that people have come to really depend upon are about to expire within weeks. I'm quite confident that they will figure it out. But these are the types of upfront costs. There's hardware costs, there's licensing costs that are required to make this thing um, work. There's also a couple of very interesting pilot programs underway, which if they work out and if they get rolled out in bigger ways, I'm thinking here of the bring your own approved device uh, pilot program, bring your own approved device to work. That's a very interesting one. And the other one is called Device One, which is allowing a small group of people at the moment to have access to classified information and classified networks from home. If those two would reach fruition, I think that really becomes a game changer. And what do you think are the um, potential barriers to expansion? Um, it sounds like budget and buying the right things might be one. Are there others maybe that come to mind? Absolutely. Probably the biggest one is culture. So although you have people now, particularly top leaders, talking about um, how they have been pleasantly surprised by uh, how well teleworking has, has operated, uh, I'm still a little bit of a skeptic that enough of the culture change will have occurred in time once COVID is, is behind us. What I mean by that I think particularly we in the department, we were still too many of us in this sort of old think mentality. If the person isn't working side by side with us or if they're not right down the hall and accessible to us in person within five minutes, if they're at home working, maybe they're not working at all. This is the skepticism that many people had. So are we really, really beyond that skepticism enough to really keep this going uh, in perpetuity in a significant way? That's the cultural question that that is on the table. The other biggie that has to be worked on a continual basis is cybersecurity, especially cyber hygiene. Because with 4 million people now working from home, not necessarily on classified work, but could be on sensitive work, the opportunities for cyber mischief, cyber spear phishing has increased. Um, bad actors on the scene have lots more computers and attack surfaces that could be vulnerable that they could attack. So cyber will be uh, certainly an ongoing concern as well. Thank you so much for the time, Debbie. Thank you. Up next, breaking down the National Defense Authorization Act. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new analysis and what Congress still needs to decide. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
both the House and Senate versions of the National Defense Authorization Act would eliminate the chief management officer role at the Pentagon. A new analysis of the bills from the Heritage Foundation advocates for keeping the CMO role. Fred Bartels is a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for being here, Fred. What do you think are the biggest issues Congress still needs to decide on in this legislation? My pleasure. Uh, the issue that you mentioned at the top of the chief management officer, the, the main debate is why are they actually decide both chambers have decided on terminating the position, but the question is what is next and what are they trying to affect? Uh, our analysis shows that there has not been enough time with sufficient authority for the position to, ex to execute or not execute. It's too early to pass judgment on that. Uh, further beyond that, you have the Indo-Pacific. There is that both chambers have a version of it, but they still need to decide everyday details. Uh, further, there are a lot of issues on nuclear modernization that the House took a fairly different approach, uh, especially prohibiting any uh, possibility of testing in the future or, or preparing for possible tests. And even if there's an actual need. So those three, I think, are on top of the line and ought to be high. Just to go back to the CMO, CMO one for a second, what do you think the benefits are? Um, do you think if we were to keep it for longer, then DOD would, would have a better sense of whether it's working and Congress might have a better sense of whether it's working? My main issue there is now that you're tossing the baby with the bath water. Uh, the position was created as it ends in the NDAA of 2017. Uh, the current holder of the position was only confirmed by the Senate in December of 2019. So even if the person holding the office was the ideal position, if they have set up the proper authorities for the whole year, there's still not enough time for them to be able to execute any substantial change and any substantial business reform, especially because the DOD operates on very long budget cycles. So they are, you, you need to consider at least like two years for someone actually to affect change on the budget cycle, and you, and you see that reflected on budget request. Right. With with both um, chambers calling for this to be eliminated, do you think there's any hope at this point to, to keep it? I think so. Uh, there is a movement both on the, on the Senate and the House of some lawmakers that don't disagree with terminating the position yet. And the bigger player that has not spoken public yet is Secretary Asper and Deputy Secretary West. Uh, it would be important to see an assessment from them, to, see, to hear from them how they understand that position. I imagine that they have spoken to lawmakers, but that those discussions have not come out to public. Right. What recommendations did your analysis have for Navy shipbuilding? Yeah. So the the main question on the Navy shipbuilding process is that you we haven't seen yet a new long term plan, and right now the there are some provisions in the House that would overburden the unmanned. Uh, per, I mean, that they're developing in the Navy. And I think that that kind of hampers the evolution of the process. Uh, the important thing is how you're going to treat uh, the submarine. Uh, the House has a request for a second uh, Columbia class, which the Senate does not. And part of that difference is how they shipyard capability. And that's something that my colleague, Heritage, has studied and has seen it. And there are actually capabilities problems on how to optimize the yards in the long run. 
Sure. Well, do you see any barriers to this conference bill? What do you think the odds are that these um, their differences can be reconciled rel relatively quickly? So the odds were better than they were last year when the House adopted a highly partisan bill that did not count with any Republican vote from the start. So you have a better starting point, but you have, on the other hand, you have the problem of the presidential election that is over. There's a big shadow over all the political discussions in Congress nowadays. And expect that you'd see that push forward the, the whole calendar. So it, there are big issues, but none of them should, should stop the bill on the tracks, uh, especially if the House is willing to reach bipartisan solutions. You note, though, that, of course, the timing of the, the election, and, and there certainly is a lot going on. Do you still feel optimistic that we're going to get a, a bill on time? Uh, depends on what you think of it's on time. I, I don't think much is going to get done before the end of the fiscal year. But you never know if the leadership in, in Congress and the Senate want to bring up a past NDA as something for them to discuss on the campaign trails, that could change. But uh, honestly, right now, if I was a betting man, I would bet after. Thanks so much for Which being here. Oh, my pleasure. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.